Song breaks out whenever and wherever Jesus appears. Mary sings, Zacharias sings, the angels sing, Simeon sings, and when the Lamb ascends, heaven sings. We at Theopolis wish you a joyous Christmas. Sing, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. And we invite you to please remember us in your year-end giving. There is a link to donate and become a partner with us in our work in the show notes. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series, working through James Jordan's work through New Eyes. And here the team will be in chapter eight on birds and beasts. We want to remind you again about our new podcast, The Civitas Podcast, hosted by Peter Lightheart and James Wood. You can find a link to that new monthly podcast in the show notes. And in that show, Lightheart, Wood, and others will be exploring post-liberalism and ecclesiocentric political theology. So we'd love for you to subscribe over there to that new show. And the second episode will be coming out next week. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Leichhardt, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James Bijan. Uh, Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, is uh, detained at the airport currently and won't be able to be with us today. We hope he'll rejoin us for the next uh, set of episodes in a couple weeks' time. Brian Motes, as usual, in the background, we're always thankful for Brian, who uh, is recording, making sure that the recording is smooth and it's all edited and ready for your ready for your listening. You'll be hearing this right around the Christmas uh, Christmas Day, so uh, Merry Christmas to you all. We hope you had a blessed Advent season and a blessed Christmas season as we celebrate the coming of our Lord and the incarnation of the Son of God in human flesh. We pray that you would uh, you're filled with the joy of the season and that uh, in some way our podcasts, although we're not talking about Advent or Christmas, is uh, illuminating and edifying to you in the season. We're in the middle of a series on James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, and uh, we have gotten up to chapter eight, which will be the topic of this episode. Jordan's book is largely a, uh, at least at the beginning of the book, it's largely a study of biblical symbolism. He goes through different uh, aspects of biblical symbolism. He talks about sun, moon, and stars, and how those are used in scripture, what they signify, how they reveal God, how they reveal things about human existence, human human life. He talks about gemstones and rocks. Uh, in the last episode, we talked about plants and the very wide-ranging and complex and rich imagery of plants that we find in the Bible. And this week, we're going to be talking about birds and beasts, animals. Uh, and as I said at the beginning of the episode last time, I want to repeat what I said uh, because it's, it applies here too. And that is that the analogies that the Bible highlights are analogies that are built into the creation. And that's not just a general inference. You could say they're built into creation because uh, you could use a, a theological argument along these lines. You could say everything that exists somehow reveals God, different aspects of God. And so everything that exists must be somehow connected in some way with everything else that exists. Uh, there must be some kind of analogies built in uh, you can make a you can make a theological argument, but um, you can also make an exegetical argument. You make an argument from the text of the creation account, 
uh, when I when we talked about plants last week, I pointed out that plants are the first things that come up from the ground on day three of the creation. And then on day six, animals are called from the ground, land animals are called from the ground. And in Genesis 2, we learned that Adam is made from the dust of the ground. So uh, plants are associated with animals and human beings by their origin. And plants are also associated with human beings by being the first fruitful things that God makes in the earth. The first things that uh, produce, that make something else. The first time we have the verb make used for something other than God, God makes things in the first couple of days of the creation week. The first creature that makes something uh, is uh, a tree that makes fruit that has seed in it. And so the plants come up from the ground and they produce fruit and then animals are also fruitful. Human beings are also commanded to be fruitful. So you have these analogies built into the creation. The same thing is true of animals and human beings. Um, I was talking about the relationship between plants and animals and human beings, but there's a specific relationship between animals and human beings. Part of it is the fact that both come from the ground, both have the source in the ground. Uh, But I think the more interesting and extensive one is the fact that both animals, whether they're sea animals or land animals, are described in Genesis 1 as living souls, nefesh kaya. Uh, And that's the very same phrase that's used for Adam in Genesis 2, when God breathes into his nostrils, Adam becomes a nefesh kaya. He becomes a living soul, as the animals are, and as the fish and the great sea monsters are, and implicitly as the birds are. So, uh, we have that very deep analogy between human beings and animate, other animate creatures, uh, self-moving creatures that uh, that populate the earth. I think that's at the baseline. That I think is what what uh, what uh, nefesh connotes. It, it connotes a mobility and self-mobility. I mean, we can plants can move if you move them. Plants do move to a certain extent, but uh, they don't move in the way that animals do. Um, animals can uh, animals have the, the capacity for mobility that human beings have. But I think that the the fact that animals are living souls goes deeper than that. The soul is associated with desire in scripture uh, and with hungers, with thirst. Uh, and the, the uh, fact that both animals and human beings are described as souls indicates that animals and human beings are uh, driven by desire. We, we're mobile creatures and we are moved by desire. Uh, we have desire for meeting basic needs for, for sustenance. So we're moved by desire for food and we seek out food and we find food. We're moved by desire for water, but we're moved by higher desires, other kinds of desires. And those desires are a kind, a kind of cause of self-mobility for living souls. And I think we can even push the push the point to saying that, uh, uh, like human beings, animals have a kind of personality. Uh, the soul is not as dominant in biblical anthropology as it is in some later Christian anthropologies or uh, perhaps in certain forms of uh, Greek philosophical anthropology. Uh, the soul is one uh, feature of the life of man along with the heart, along with the kidneys, other other parts of the other parts of man are participating in the inner life of man. Uh, but soul is associated with thought, soul is associated with uh, with something like personality. And I think that's that's part of what's being suggested by the by Genesis one that human beings human beings are made in the image of God. That's what's distinctive about human beings. Uh, Adam is made in an intimate fashion in a way that no other creature is made. That's also distinctive of human beings. But the fact that there are there's a kind of person personal dimension to our existence, human beings have that personal 
dimension in a fuller way. But animals also have personalities. Anybody who's gotten close to a pet knows that your animal has a personality. Different different species of animals have personalities. Uh, different animals within the same species have different personalities. Uh, you can enter into personal relationships with animals. Uh, sometimes uh, we we mock the idea that human beings that human beings uh, some people will say you know my best friend is my dog. We think what a lonely miserable life they lead, and that may be true, but they're not they're not making up the relationship that they have with their dog. There really is a kind of interaction there that isn't the same as human interaction. It's not the same as human personality, but it's really there. So um, those are just a, a few dimensions of what I, what's I think in the background in the creation account for what Jim develops in this chapter uh, when he's talking about the way that animals, what the animals signify, particularly the way that different sorts of animals signify different sorts of human traits and different kinds of people. I could add one other introductory comment before we, before we plunge in. I think this is, this chapter is one of the places where I think Jim makes good on his claim that we need to, we have to understand the way that biblical symbolism works in order to understand the teaching of scripture. And I'm thinking particularly of the way that the, analogy between human beings and animals provides the backdrop and the logic for the uh, sacrificial system. Uh, if there were no analogy between human beings and animals, if they were, uh, if uh, human beings and animals were entirely different, the sacrificial system would just seem to be arbitrary, completely arbitrary. You just got just selected something out of, out of the world and says, okay, now this thing, this particular kind of animal symbolizes the human being uh, as he goes to the altar, as he's slaughtered, as he's burned and transfigured to smoke and arises as, as a soothing savor, a sweet smelling savor before the Lord. Uh, but the logic of the sacrificial system is that uh, animals are created to be representative of human beings. Certain kinds of animals are especially associated with human beings. There are certain animals that I think already in Genesis 1 and 2 are created to be domesticated, created as domestic animals. I think Adam already had domestic animals around him. He didn't have to tame everything. There's some certain animals I think that became pre-tamed. Uh, right. Certain kinds of animals are associated with human beings, and those are the animals that are entering into the the sacrificial system. There are other there are other reasons to have those particular animals, but that that background of symbolism, animal symbolism, uh, is the background logic to the sacrificial system, and the sacrificial system, of course, is the basis for our understanding of in some ways for our understanding of sin, certainly for our understanding of atonement, for understanding of the role of blood and the cleansing power of blood, uh, which means that in order to understand the work of Jesus and the atoning work of Christ, we need to understand the sacrificial system and to get the depth understanding of the sacrificial system, we have to see this symbolic analogy between human beings and these particular kinds of animals. So I think we could we could see the same same thing going on in, in lots of other parts of uh, Through New Eyes, but in this part particularly, I think Jim is showing how if we don't have this symbolic universe in mind, then we simply miss we miss the point of biblical teaching. It's not like the symbolic dimensions are a, a, an extra layer or an icing on the cake of doctrine, but uh, the doctrine depends on the symbolic relationship. Right, and just to continue that thought, I mean, presumably the idea is that an animal is an apt representative in some way of humanity and so can kind of take fallen man's place in some senses in going into God's 
presence and dying and and ascending um so there's an aptness but given that really it, it is us who are the head of animals there's an imperfection and that kind of just leaves the door open doesn't it for a better sacrifice you know a, a sacrifice that can enter um god's presence on our behalf but can genuinely represent um man as uh not just something that is like him but as someone who is his uh, figurehead and who is a, a perfect man and so you know I'm, I'm really just reiterating what you're saying but the the kind of way in which um uh this kind of comes together what jim's already said comes together in this chapter gives you such a good foundation for um for what's to follow in the sacrificial system and looking at the sacrificial system, we see not just the connection between human beings and animals, but very specific connections. So the bull represents the high priest or the whole congregation. You have the um, male goat, which represents the leader of the people, um, the civil leader. Or we have the ram and the um, we have the ewe. And then we have the particular ages of the animals. We have the, the birds, the turtle dove or the pigeon. And each one of them represents a particular group of people. And as we see it, particularly within certain types of sacrifices, that difference between animals is also symbolically weighted, not just the human-animal relationship as such. Something that struck me as I was reading over this chapter was what Jim said about the um, about what Adam learns from the animals. So I'm on page, um, where we are, uh, 96 here and um jim writes this he says in genesis 2 we find that god brought animals to adam to name or to describe um adam gave names to them and in the process he noticed that all the animals came in sexual pairs he might have reasoned from this that he was simply different from the animals in this regard instead however he rightly observed that if animals had mates he should also and um that just struck me as, as really interesting. I'd never considered before that God may have brought um, animals to Adam in in pairs, if you like, um, in a very Noah-like um, fashion, male and female. And Peter was saying previously how some of the comments Jim makes quickly can shed light on other things. I mean, I was looking at the flood account not too long ago and it, it's very pointed the way in which the animals come to um noah in pairs um where are we this is now sort of chapter um seven and, and verse two you know take with you um seven pairs of clean animals um the, the male and and his wife really it says ish for ish toast just the the, the natural way of, of, of saying you know i think it's translated mate often but it's like a, a man and his wife really and it just strikes me that we're we're so used to the animal kingdom as being this very um polygamous thing where as far as i understand it mammals will have multiple um mates but a lot of this may be us observing a fallen world and it may well be that kind of um further back in creation kind of pre-flood in, in a less fallen world that 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 wasn't the case there wasn't this uh, polygamy dominating the uh uh animal world but that that does seem to be um these things that jim points out in this chapter seem to be very prominent in uh how the flood 
is described, the, the way in which there is this male and, and female, um, uh, um, the language, and the, the way in which, in fact, it, it's very uh, present in the flood account that uh, the animal world has corrupted its way as well. It's not just man who has fallen. It's, it's very pointed that it's, it's reflected in, in the fallen nature of, of the animal world as well. Yeah, I think that uh, that's. I think that's true. That uh, Adam is discovering an analogy, or he's reasoning based on an analogy with animals. At the same time, it's clear that that same investigation and naming ends up with Adam recognizing a difference between himself and the animals. At the point you were making at the beginning of your comments, James, that um, because uh, you know he's looking at the animals and he might think uh, he's looking at a burrow and he might think, well. That little thing looks pretty pretty strong. If I if I ever need to pull something heavy, maybe I could make use of that. So there's he finds a certain kind of help from examining the animals, but he doesn't find a kind of helper among those animals that God intends for him. And so there's there's also a recognition of difference from the animals. This is a point that uh, John Paul II makes when he talks about uh, in his theology of the body when he talks about Adam. Uh, naming uh, the animals. Part of that is his recognition of his of his status, uh, what, what John Paul describes as status as person over against animal. Uh, I think I'd want to, as I said at the beginning, I'd, I'd want to make that distinction a little a little fuzzier because I think animals have a certain kind of personality. But I think there's a recognition in on Adam's part of his difference from the animals as well as his similarity to the animals that that he's coming to in that in that episode. When I used to teach. Uh, in Moscow, Idaho, I used "Through New Eyes" as one of the one of the main texts, and uh, one of the things that almost annually uh, somebody in the class would object to was Jim's discussion of uh, clean and unclean animals. And the thing that w- they'd object to was just what seemed to them kind of a uh, a childish or silly idea that clean and unclean animals are determined by whether the animals. I, th- I think that Jim uses the word "shoe," whether animals are wearing shoes or not whether they have proper footwear. So are they, do they have cloven hoofs or do they not have cloven hoofs or do they have hoofs at all? If they don't have hoofs at all, then they're, then they're unclean. But if they have hoofs that are not cloven, then they're also unclean. And so the text itself does draw attention to the, to the footwear as it were. And I, th- I think Jim's argument is pretty strong at that point, actually. He again, put, he puts that in the context of the curse that uh, the Lord gives. The ground is cursed in regard to you. The ground is going to be a prosecutor of the curse. If you have dust on your feet, you need to wash that dust before you come into the presence of God. You need to we, you need to take off your sandals, which had the dust of the of the curse on them, before you come into the holy into holy space. So the fact that these animals are somehow separated from dust separates them from the serpent who crawls in the dust and eats the dust. It makes them different kinds of animals, different relationship to the ground. And somehow it, it signifies uh, the way that human beings should relate to the cursed ground, that they should they should be careful not to be serpents who eat the dust and crawl in the dust. The other thing I think that uh, the, the other point that I think is very strong in, in the favor of Jim's argument is that the clean and unclean don't don't have to do with the general habits or character of the animal uh, that's being that's being classified. So uh the, he points out that eagles, eagles are majestic. Eagles represents several in several passages. The Lord Himself is like an eagle, uh, bearing Israel on eagles' wings out of Egypt, 
hovering over Israel, fluttering over Israel protectively, like a great bird, a great eagle flutters over its young as they go through the wilderness. Uh, you have um, empires, great, uh, the, the, in Ezekiel, you have the eagle that comes and takes off a portion of branches at the top of a great cedar tree and takes them off into another land. Uh, you have eagles uh, that, uh, that at the end of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 40, you know, mount up on eagle's wings. That's a good thing. So the eagle is majestic. The eagle is a wonderful animal. The eagle manifests something of the of the power of God, and yet eagles are unclean. And so it's not the it's not that unclean animals are somehow wicked, or that unclean animals necessarily are associated with the serpent directly. Sometimes they are, uh, but it has to do with their contact with the ground. And again, just the general point that you have you have uh, animals that are useful to man that like. Uh, donkeys like camels that appear as domesticated animals very early in the Bible and are useful to human beings and yet are unclean. They're domesticated and yet they are unclean. So it doesn't have to do with the general character of the animal. It has to do with uh, how they are related to the ground that the Lord has cursed. As we look through the order of the chapters in Leviticus, I think this strengthens the point that there is a trespass in what the animals are brought to the man there's the man within the garden, as it were, the garden of the sanctuary of the tabernacle that has been created at the end of Exodus. The animals are brought to the man with the instruction for the sacrifices. There's a trespass in the sanctuary with Nadab and Abihu. And then as you go through the chapters that follow, there's a playing out of the order of the curses. So in chapter 11, after the sin in the sanctuary, you have the laws concerning the clean and unclean animals. In chapter 12, laws concerning childbirth, the judgment upon the woman. And then in chapters 13 and 14, the um, person who's struck with the skin disease. Um, and then in chapter 15, pollution from the flesh. And in chapter 16, um, the risk of expulsion from the sanctuary and covering provided. And so it's replaying the order of the events in chapter three of Genesis, but with key reversals. And when we see that connection, we can begin to understand why the serpent would be the key to unlocking the difference between the clean and the unclean animals in chapter 11. And we can see that in a number of different respects. The serpent is an animal that swallows its food whole, whereas the um, animals that ruminate, the clean animals, are different in that respect. Likewise, the serpent has direct, unmediated um, contact with the cursed earth, crawls on its belly and eats dust. Whereas in the case of these animals with the cloven hooves, there is a distinguishing of their contact with the earth. There's a division in their hooves, which represents in the same way as their rumination, some barrier between them and just taking in the creation whole. We might also think of the, the birds, the carrying birds, that whether that's the eagle, the os osprey or the hawk, all these sorts of animals, um, they're doing the same sort of thing. Um, they're swallowing, um, or they're taking death into themselves in a way that the clean animals do not. Think about the scales of the fish that again provide them with some sort of barrier against that which is without. Or we might also think about the way in which those animals in the sea that do not have that feature tend to be more serpentine in their form, maybe eels and things like that. I do like eating eels. But um, there are ways in which these animals represent um, analogies to the serpent in various aspects of its form or its behavior, swallowing food whole, preying upon death, 
direct contact with contact with the dust. And once we've begun to see the literary parallels between Leviticus and Genesis chapter three, we can begin to see why, um, even further, why the serpent would be a key to understanding the division between clean and unclean animals. Alistair, I'm heartened to know that you um, enact your God-given dominion over the serpent by eating eels regularly in um, uh, in England. Is this jelly eels? Jelly eels, one of my favourite um, establishments, has just been closed. <laughs> this is a source of great disappointment to me, if not to my wife. Can somebody uh, define jellied in that phrase? Um, it's pretty much what it sounds like. You have a sort of fishy jelly with lumps of eel inside. I'm I'm speechless. I, I have to admit, <laughs> not surprised, but speechless. <laughs> Traditional English fare. This is why we traveled all over the world to find new spices. <laughs> Seeing as we're delving into different types of food, um, something that struck me as interesting going through this uh, chapter. Jim talks about the way in which um, the clean and unclean distinction is um, is not new with the uh, tabernacle and the kind of cultic ordinances and so on, but it's present in um, the flood narrative and the clean and unclean is, is known to Noah, um, which is true. But I, I thought also it's interesting to note the kind of subtle distinction. So the actual term unclean is something that comes first in uh, Leviticus, or, or certainly if it's not Leviticus, with, with the kind of Celtic uh, ordinances, whereas in the flood story, it's simply not clean. So there's only the word for something which is um, clean and you just kind of negate it in the flood story, stick not before it, rather than you actually have this specific term for unclean in um, Leviticus. And that just seems interesting to me in that there is this sense in which when the tabernacle and so on is instituted and the Lord literally dwells in the midst of his people, things take on this whole new um, dimension. And rather than there just being a lack of cleanness, um, there is this whole new dimension of uncleanness, which comes into existence and at that point in time. And so that just struck me as an interesting um observation that uh, Jim makes and, and something that can then be kind of traced uh, through the Bible as, as the story unfolds. I guess we could even think of a similar connection in the, in, in uh, the creation story as God uh, brings things um, uh, to life. He doesn't just sort of create them normally, at least ex nihilo, but rather it's let the earth uh, bring forth or let the waters bring forth. And there, I guess there is just, they're kind of mini resurrections in that they are God bringing forth living things from just non-living, but it's not really dead. It's just non-living. And it seems then that there's a, a parallel um, between sort of the way in which you have uh, a contrast of non-living um, and living and sort of non-clean and um, clean early on to kind of the way in which you've got literally that more marked contrast between um, mm. uh, un unclean, let's call it filthy now, sort of tame and clean versus um, dead and living. So there, there is this sort of uh, 
important, I think, unfolding of what's going on. Yeah, that's really good. And I, and I, I just want to give my my endorsement to the way you characterize what's going on in the creation week. Uh, God is speaking to creation, and creation um, becomes creative, as it were, by by the power of the word. Creation contributes to its own fullness and its own completion. I I, I like the idea that uh, it's a kind of proto resurrection. Creation itself is a kind of proto resurrection. Now, I, wa- I wanted to uh, go go to a point that I made in relation to plants in our last episode, and that that is that um, Jim highlights the variety of different categories of animals and the different different relationships that they have, the different symbolic relationships they ha- have in the Bible. One of the things that I often have pointed out in thinking about Genesis one is the fact that categories of categories of uh, animals are determined by environment in Genesis one. Fish are are things that live in the sea, uh, swimming things. We distinguish between swimming things that are mammals and some that are fish, varieties of different kinds of fish. But the Bible classifies those together. Same thing with flying things. Uh, a bird is a flying thing, whether it, we would categorize it as a mammal, like a bat, or as a bird, it's it's a flying thing. So what what determines the categories is in, is is environment. So and those environments are associated with different, uh, different um, have different kind of human associations. So fish live in the sea. The sea is often a symbol of uh, the Gentile world, in contrast to the land that is symbolic of Israel. So fish living in the sea are Gentiles. Large fish, sea monsters, are large Gentiles. Gentile empires, Leviathan and Rahab and other. Uh, sea monsters that um, that depict, or the or the fish that swallows Jonah. These are different sea monsters, large large creatures within the sea that represent large Gentile powers. Birds, I think, are are kind of a a double have a double association. Uh, right from the beginning, they're described as flying across the face of the firmament, uh, which is the visible heavens, uh, and yet also nesting on the earth, which is obviously what they do. But what that suggests in the context of Genesis 1 is that birds have this kind of mediating role. Uh, they they have an association with earth, but they're also uh, elevated above earth and they have contact with the heavens. Uh, and so birds become, in some cases, birds become associated, I think, with with the priesthood in, uh, in the s- sacrificial system. Uh, birds become associated with Israel. The spirit is a bird because the spirit is a connecting point between heaven and earth. The spirit appears as a dove. Even in Genesis one two, the spirit is making bird like movements as it as it hovers over the earth. So birds have a particular kind of association within the cosmos, uh, and then different sorts of different sorts of land animals have different sorts of associations. I mentioned the distinction between tame domesticated animals and wild animals. I I, I believe that that distinction is created. It's not one that's just a product of human dominion. And the reason I do that is because God creates animals that are in Categories of cattle, behema, and animals that are chaya or living things or chaya of the of the field, which are untamed animals. The way that those two terms are used in the rest of the Old Testament, that's a distinction between domesticated and undomesticated animals. And I think that distinction is already being imported, already being used in Genesis one. So Adam is created with certain animals that are close to him, then certain animals that are more distant. His commission is to take dominion over all of the animals. And so what we have in the process of human uh, history is 
uh, the, the domestication of animals that are not yet domesticated. And I mean, that's, that's actually, obviously actually happens and has happened to some degree. I don't think we've come close to tapping the full potential of domesticating, you know, uh, bears and, uh, and mountain lions or whatever. But that's that's the that's the progress of dominion is to domesticate those animals and to bring them into the sphere of man, uh, and those different kinds of animals represent different kinds of people again. So, sacrificial animals represent Israel. There are non-sacrificial animals that are domesticated animals that are near to man that represent uh, perhaps God-fearing Gentiles. They're wild animals that are often symbols of predatory Gentiles, predatory people, and so the the classification of animals becomes a way of categorizing different sorts of human beings. Again, the root idea there is what I said at the beginning, which is this symbolic connection built into the creation between human beings and animals. Peter, you were talking there about how um, fish are associated with the waters under the earth and um, uh, and then with Gentiles uh, by, extinct, by extension in biblical imagery. And um, I was very struck by... Um, the way in which Jim develops that on page um, uh, 100 of his book here, he says, Israel is a people of the land, and throughout the Old Testament, the important people of God were farmers and herdsmen rather than fishermen, um, brackets, Jonah traveled by sea to get to Gentile Nineveh, and Gentile Tyre is pictured as a vast ship of state sailing on the seas. Um, in the New Covenant, however, all is changed the apostles were largely fishermen. Jesus fed the crowds with fish. Paul carried the gospels abroad over water. All this indicates a shift from land to sea and from Israel to the nations. And that just never struck me before. And I just find that a remarkable things that you just kind of naturally get in your head. Well, of course, this is New Testament. It's now about fish and centered around the sea of galilee and all that kind of stuff but never really um unpack so yeah that that was um yeah i i love that i found that really in, in insightful you know yeah just to press that a couple of steps further um i mean jesus jesus obviously eats fish a lot he's with his fishermen disciples which is uh, means that the diet of the incarnate son includes fish which in the old covenant the the diet as it were of Yahweh included only those sacrificial animals, those land animals that uh, that were parts of the herds and flocks of Israel. So you have a you have a the same kind of shift. What gets incorporated into the body of the sun is extended from these domesticated land animals to fish. And just one other addition to that, I do think you have that. Uh, it's a contrast between old and new, but there are a few hints of development that you have. Uh, going on in the Old Testament. I mean, uh, Solomon has a fleet of ships. They don't. They aren't said to be fishermen, uh, but he has a fleet of ships that goes trading all over uh, the you know sea, seafaring and trading, uh, which is uh, a hint of the extension of Israel's influence and contacts into the Gentile world. That's that's part of the part of the portrait of Solomon's kingdom. Of course, you have Gentile wise men coming to learn from Solomon. You have the Queen of Sheba coming to learn from Solomon. And you have the the, the outward flow of ships on the sea uh, that uh, has the same. So you, you have something of a something of a staging as you often do in the Bible. You have um, shepherds. Uh, Moses is a shepherd. Uh, all the patriarchs are shepherds. David is a shepherd. 
uh, Solomon is not a shepherd, and what during his during his reign he actually has has ships constructed, and then you have Israel spread out into the Sea of Gentiles uh, among the, among the great fish of the of the Gentile imperial world in the latter part of the Old Testament. So you have this kind of staging pattern. Development is also interesting to follow in terms of the way in which these things are described within the New Testament. So in um, Matthew, Mark, and John, the Lake of Gennesaret is always described as the Sea of Galilee, and it's described in ways that really heighten the sense of this as connected with wider seas. This is not just an inland lake of fairly modest size. This is sea-like, and whereas in the um, book of Luke, you have it described as the lake, and then you get into the book of Acts, and there the sea imagery comes in in Paul's apostolic journeys, and particularly in the shipwreck towards the end. There is this deep attention, I think, in all of these accounts to the symbolic import of this body of water and bodies of waters more generally. And as Peter just noted, the history of Israel really does depend upon um, its progression out into the sea. Um, So we have the access to Edomite ports under the reign of Solomon. And for various periods of Israel's flourishing, it has access to those southern ports and so can extend its trading reach. And at other points, it has access, more access to the Mediterranean. For the most part, it's operating within the inland sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias, the different names for it. And as we look through scripture, there's this sense that um, Israel's destiny is to be carried out as it moves out into the larger seas that surround it. So it's not just this inland lake, that's a sort of staging ground um, where you already have Zebulun and other tribes that are associated with that who are described in relationship to ships. But there's this greater destiny as Israel goes out upon the upon the seas and bears its message to the islands of the Gentiles. And the way that the Gentiles are described as sea monsters, as um, islands, as these sea, seaborne peoples, I think also helps us to understand some of the imagery that crops up in places like the book of Jonah, where you have the sea monster, which can represent um, Assyria and Babylon and these great powers of the north, or you have in, I think it's Jeremiah, and Pharaoh described as a a monster within the river, a crocodile or something like that. We might think about the way that the ship tossed upon the sea um, with the pagan sailors and the unfaithful Israelite prophet can be a representation of the, the sort of geopolitics of that region tossed upon the sea of the Gentiles and this little bit of the land that's out on the sea and this unfaithful Israelite prophet that's trying to escape from his vocation and the way that being cast away from that piece of the land into the ocean and then swallowed up by a sea monster is very much a representation of what the exile would mean. And then, of course, as we've discussed, when you get into the book of Acts and you have the shipwreck, you have another image of the ship of state going out upon the seas, um, the seas of the Gentiles, and yet this preservation of the people within in a sort of Passover-like deliverance, which is, of course, connected with the crucifixion, 
and all the events associated with Christ's redemption in the Gospel of Luke. And so there's great attention to this imagery. And once we've again got this little key in thinking about the movement from sheep and land and shepherds to the seas and fish and fishermen, so many other things start to open up and we begin to see a lot of the symbolic import of passages that we might have missed. Yeah, and that link with uh, that movement from sheep to fish, I mean, brings to my mind just because of various things I've been looking at recently, the fact in uh, the way in which in the Gospels sheep can be counted, you know, um, a sheep will count his shepherd, but then at the close of the Gospels, um, fish are counted um, in the 153 fish. And that can, I guess, be tied into those broader ideas, Peter and Anastasia, you were both talking about the way in which Israel kind of expands into the seas as it expands um, dominion and and uh, a very kind of graphic image of that, probably one of the few places in the Old Testament where fishermen are mentioned is, of course, Ezekiel's final um, chapters, where we have this water kind of flowing out um, from uh, the temple, but then going out into um, the seas, you know, the great uh, sea is mentioned and sort of some more northerly um, sea connected with Damascus is is mentioned and, and probably Galilee is, is encompassed in some of the other um, references to bodies of, of water. And um, uh, this is something, Anastasia, that you might you and I might go into at some point, but the number 153 is present in various ways in um, uh, in Ezekiel, in, in sort of some gematrial uh, features of that. And I, th- I think that kind of putting things like that together in, in light of a, uh, a large sweep of scripture can, at least to my mind, be so illuminating, so, so helpful to tie things together. We can see um, if, if we if we look at the look at the Bible as it's actually written and the variety of different animals that appear in it, we can do the same thing with animals that I suggested Vern Poitras suggested years ago. Uh, we can do with plants, and that is to read the entirety of the Bible as a story of animals. Um, Adam is created to have dominion over the animals. The fall involves submission to an animal. So an inversion of the order and the hierarchy between human beings and animals. Eve listens to the voice of a serpent rather than listening to the voice of God or the voice of her husband. Uh, And that creates this inversion, uh, which is in some ways reinforced by the fact that Adam and Eve go out of the garden wearing animal skin. So they're clothed like animals. Uh, And so then we have this this, uh, symbolic setup that human beings have subordinated themselves to lower creatures. That that's what has uh, that's what has caused the disruption that sin brings, uh, and uh, redemption is a restoration of humanity, so that we're uh, elevated above the creatures again. And we see this a couple of times. I think in Daniel, we see um, Nebuchadnezzar being cast down, uh, becoming a beast, and then being restored to human existence. Uh, in Daniel 4, we see uh, the empires in Daniel 7 that are depicted as various kind of sea monsters coming up out of the sea that the Son of Man then comes and takes dominion over and he receives the glory and dominion. So in both of those cases, restoration and redemption of human life is described in terms of restoration of humanity out of this kind of semi-animalistic condition that we're in because we submitted to a creature, because we submitted to the serpent, or the way that idolatry is described in various places in the Bible. 
idolatry is submitting to the creature, uh, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And those uh, those creatures are often four-footed animals and creeping things and uh, and birds. That's what people worship. And by submitting to those images of other creatures, we're submitting to their dominion and we're lowering ourselves instead of being uh, above them. So release from idolatry and redemption from idolatry is a rehumanization and a deliverance from the dominion of animals. So those are various hints of the way that we could take animals as the theme of the Bible and uh, look at the whole of the whole of redemption through that lens up until the point where we come to the new creation that Isaiah describes in terms of reconciliation between traditional animal enemies, you know, uh, lions and lambs lying down together, the ox and the bear grazing together, a uh, little child playing at the, at the den of the cobra. That reconciliation is what uh, the creation is leading to, uh, where you have a proper order between human beings and animals, uh, and, and, and uh, human beings are no longer subordinating themselves to, to those lower creatures. And if we do that, then uh, we're not only seeing animals uh, in a new way, but we're seeing the entire Bible through new eyes. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.